Hey everyone, this is John Christensen with a new episode of the Wealth Confidant podcast. One of the main reasons people seek out financial professionals is because money can be so complicated. A great financial advisor is someone you can trust, who can listen and translate what you want and need in your life into actionable plans, and who understands your values and how to align your money with them, helping to integrate your life and money in ways that bring you peace of mind and freedom. What I refer to as being more than an advisor, but instead a confidant. Financial advisors aren't traditionally well-versed in the emotional and psychological connections to money. But we are starting to see more and more advisors make their clients' overall happiness a number one priority. With that, I'm excited to introduce today's guest, Brian Portnoy. Brian is an expert at simplifying the complicated world of money. Brian earned his doctorate at the University of Chicago and has worked throughout the financial industry. He's also the author of two great books, one, The Investor's Paradox, and the second one, The Geometry of Wealth. Brian's perspective really resonated with me. He's not afraid to bring insight from many different disciplines to his work. Brian believes that elements of a joyful life and the financial decisions we make are complementary. Taking both into account, people can find true wealth, what he calls funded contentment, a really interesting concept. This more holistic approach is something I strive towards in my own financial life coaching. During our conversation, we also talk about the future of the financial advising industry, what it means to afford a meaningful life, how generosity affects our own sense of well-being, and the difference between getting rich and becoming wealthy. Let's get into it. Brian, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the Wealth Confidant Podcast. Thanks for having me. You know, we've got two CFAs on the show today. You threw in a PhD on top of it. So we're going to kind of geek out on all things money and life, but it's not just about the practical things around money. It's also around a space that you and I both care about. I thought I was kind of the only one, you know, but it sounds like you really care about this softer side of money, what you call money life. I refer to as living fully, but nonetheless, this idea of of meaning and purpose and creating a life, truly wealthy life. So I'm, I couldn't be more excited to chat with you today about kind of what we both think is important. That's great. That's great. Looking forward to it. I love your tagline. I don't know if it is technically your tagline, but it's what I see you use a lot, which is this idea of helping people to simplify the complex world of money. That, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, it, it describes what I do and what I like to do. And it does seem to to resonate with people. I think what I've seen, I've been in the business for about 20 years now. And it sounds like you have seen the same thing, which is that people find money very difficult and overwhelming topic. And that's not entirely because of the mathematics or the statistics of it. In fact, that's a very minor piece of it. What I've learned over time, both on the professional side, but just growing older with a growing family and aging parents is that money is an emotional lightning rod. It's a psychological experience more than an analytic one. And so we should take that seriously and have a real conversation about real, what really matters. And that was the impetus for writing the Geometry of Wealth. 
Well, I'm excited to get into that. And I think it's totally true. What you just said, though, about that idea of we're in an industry where we're taught to consult with people and really tell them an answer. They come to us and say, hey, what am I supposed to do practically with my money? We're very good at telling people those things. But what we're not trained to do and what I talk a lot about in my own work is we're not trained to talk to them really about some of this emotional psychological stuff as it relates to money, because that is much more of a coaching relationship. I'm curious if that's what you've seen and and what do you think advisors of the future might need to do to become more trusted confidants or to really step into this space? Because it's a unique area. Yeah, it is. And it, it, it's a big and I think pretty active debate in the wealth management industry now, which is basically like, what are they supposed to be doing for their clients and it could range from something as narrow as picking securities and building a portfolio to the other end of the spectrum which is you know underwriting happiness like you know when I give talks to advisors on this general topic one of the questions that I ask that I intend to be provocative and maybe even a little bit abrasive which is are you responsible for your client's happiness and you see different types of body language. Some people lean in and say, huh, you know, I, I have that service model in mind and I provide a certain type of experience. And you see other people close down on their body language because they, I'm guessing, they come from more of a brokerage background where what they're really supposed to do is sell you financial products. And I'm not going to be overly critical of that, but I think the trend in the industry is toward providing not only good service, but a great experience and helping your clients, you know, navigate all of these really difficult emotional decisions. I think on a going forward basis, that's where the growth is. And it's also where the margin is. Because if all you're offering is a diversified portfolio of different investments, at this point, anybody with a computer and, and Google can find that through Vanguard or an online brokerage for basis points. Yeah. And I think as you move up the value stack, I would argue even some basic financial planning services and even some of the what we used to call the bread and butter wealth management services are, are getting you know, pecked away at by better competition that's cheaper and faster, but basically the internet or robo-investing or any number of other ways that are, are chipping away at those things. So I do think there's a pressure to move up that value chain and, and become more of a trusted advisor. I think it points at this spot that we're talking about today, I believe. So it sounds like you're in that same camp. Oh, 100%. I think the general trend over the last 50, 60 plus years in the financial advice business is, has been from selling to solving. So, you know, the old school brokerage business was just that. It was, you know, selling access to the market, selling particular securities at very high price. And we know starting in the 90s, but accelerating over the last 15, 20 years, market access is effectively free and many investments are effectively free. You can get global stock and bond exposure for almost zero basis points at this point. It's almost literally free. So finding that access and keeping it is not the task that it used to be. So I mean, this happens to all industries well beyond financial services. Over time, things become commoditized and, and people who want to continue to not only make a good living, but to add value for their clients, they, they have to 
climb that value ladder. And I would say, you know, the behavioral finance psychology element to it is that's going to be front and center. And you, you can think about the fact that, you know, your basic microeconomics and the basics of finance start with the simple but incredibly powerful and philosophically charged, you know, notion that more is better. Okay, you want to invest money in the market and you want $100 to turn into $200. You at work want to get promoted. You want, you know, your family to grow up prosperous and all that. Like, so more is a really good thing. But if you actually look at the underlying psychology of the relationship between having and making more money and being happy and fulfilled, it's at minimum complex. And beyond that, it breaks down pretty quickly. Yeah, it's it's just a fascinating space and I'm I'm interested to hear more about how you feel about some of these areas. But before we jump into that, where did this interest for you this intersection between personal fulfillment and money management come from? Was there some genesis there? Yes, but both professionally and personally. I mean, won't bore your listeners with my life story, but you know, going back 25 to 30 years, I I was in academia. And I was studying politics and sociology and, and economics, ended up doing a doctorate at the University of Chicago in political economy. And so in a sort of the cross-disciplinary perspective on how the world works, really big question, that's always been part of me. Just from a career point of view, I ended up in the investing world at a local firm here in Chicago called Morningstar that you know many people are familiar with. They do a lot mm-hmm. of investment research, but the place also has a, a, a fantastic culture in terms of being focused on, you know, helping investors find their way in a pretty noisy marketplace. And so I had that interdisciplinary background, but then ended up, you know, in a relatively narrowly defined investment portfolio management seat for many, many years. But then coming full circle, I kind of pulled my head out of the weeds and began to look bigger picture combined with the fact that married regrowing children as well as aging parents. And there's a lot to figure out. And I realized, man, having a higher sharp ratio or picking the better mutual fund, or we could list, you know, a hundred different somewhat trivial things like that. They don't really speak to what I've seeing matter in people's lives, including my own. And as I talk about in the book a little bit, you know, there's this big question that I've seen advisors and, and their clients struggle with, and that is, am I going to be okay? Now, that's not a finance question, but money fits into it. And so I, I, I kind of wanted to bring it all together into this concept of what I call funded contentment. Like the idea is you want to lead a life that's meaningful to you and however you choose to define that. And that's a very personal decision. Mm-hmm. You know, in your own mind or with your partner or with your family or or in your community, that that is what it is. But you can't avoid the fact that money figures into our lives every single day. You mentioned money life as this concept. And so it's just not about investing. Investing is the least important piece. It's earning a living. It's saving. It's spending as well as investing. How does that all come together? Yeah, and it's interesting when you start pushing into some of these spaces, I've found that even your idea of funded contentment, which is a really interesting topic in and of itself, and you start talking about these deeper issues that were not as individuals, or I wasn't, I can speak for me, wasn't 
that wasn't something somebody taught me how to do. Let's let's go deep on what I care about and where contentment is. And so how do you address that for people you talk to or even in your own life? How did you get to that place where you knew what you wanted and the you know how you define that? Maybe can you circle the wagons on that a little bit? So it's good that you use the word circle. So, you know, in my geometry of wealth, it's three shapes, circle, triangle, and square. And and the circle represents our search for meaning or purpose in life. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it's a circle is that we're always going around and around trying to figure it out. So to me, you know, whether it be based on psychology, some elements of economics, certainly biology, just the notion of adaptation to a changing environment is just critically important to not only surviving, but thriving. As I began to dig into that, and it was as much of a, again, growing children and aging parents, like I'm in that sandwich situation right now, you know, it's as much a personal thing as it is a professional thing, trying to figure out what are the pieces of a meaningful life in and of themselves. And insofar as things change and we have to roll with the punches, you know, Mike Tyson said, you know, everybody has a plan till they get punched in the face. We get punched in the face in little ways every day. And I think responding to that adversity is where not only the struggle, but some of the joy in life comes from. And so I I just gave it a shot. I mean, I I just read a lot and talked to a lot of people going back to my somewhat nerdy academic days, like the interdisciplinary approach of thinking across psychology and biology, sociology, economics, neuroscience, and so forth you begin to see connections of insights across all of these different worlds that are somewhat separate from each other. And and you realize that there's gold to be mined. And, you know, as sort of a somewhat of a finance professional, but as a as a writer as well, I, I just wanted to bring that to the surface. And, you know, I've just felt so lucky, like this notion of funded contentment seems to have landed with a number of people. And it just gives me energy to keep pushing. In your book, The Geometry of Wealth, which I've read and has got some excellent information in it, and I really enjoyed going through it because it, it, in a lot of ways, was looking at this area we've been discussing just from a, from a different perspective, and, and I found it to be really interesting. But you, you distinguish this concept of getting rich from growing wealthy. Can you tell everybody what the difference is? Yeah, so let me refer back to that comment a few minutes ago about how most of economics and finance is based on this notion that more is better. You know, we can get wonky with it in, you know, with so-called utility functions, but no need to go there on a nice summer day. <laughs> you know, but the the idea that's baked in is that you want to grow something small into something large and and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, you know, let's so we'll put that idea on the shelf for a second and then visit the social psychological literature that looks at the relationship between money and happiness. And so actually a, a massive literature, you know, what is happiness and where money figures into it? It's actually been explored since the days of Aristotle. So this goes back 23, 24, 2400 years. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily a new topic. And what we learn, you know, from the existing research is that being rich, and I define that as just having more money, so you have half a million bucks and you grow it to a million bucks or a million to two million or $20 to $40. It doesn't matter. But becoming richer, for the most part, is not associated with higher levels of happiness. Mm-hmm. I distinguish that from being wealthy. 
and this is just my definition, being wealthy is the ability to underwrite a meaningful life. So what I've seen, especially in the financial advice business, but also with friends and family out in the real world, is that people think about money in the abstract, but they don't necessarily tie it to the real things in the world that they want to pursue. So they want a bigger portfolio, but why do they want that? So when I talk about wealthy being the ability to underwrite a meaningful life, you have to start with, well, what's a meaningful life? Mm -hmm. That's an awkward question. It's an awkward question between husband and wife, parents and children, financial advisors and clients. It's just, it's really personal, right? And then once you explore that, well, how do you underwrite that? What does it mean to afford a meaningful life? These are hard questions. And so the, the idea of funded contentment, which is another way of saying wealthy, I wanted to give a shot as to, okay, how do we make sense of this? Not only in the abstract, but how do we actually have sort of an action plan to achieve funded contentment? And do you find that when you talk to people about a meaningful life that they're able to articulate that so that you as an advisor can help them determine whether they have enough funding and if they don't, what they have to do about it? How, how do you solve that potential gap right there? One, I may or may not know what a meaningful life looks like. And because of that, then I don't really have a clear sense of how much money I need or even what I, is that even possible? Do you follow? I, I do follow. And it's, it's actually a really insightful question. I'll tell you just a quick story about a neighbor of mine who knew I was writing this book about money and happiness. And, and, and she's not in finance at all. I, I would say that she sort of live in a middle class, upper middle class neighborhood. And, you know, she was saying, oh, your book probably wouldn't be meaningful to me, or, or maybe I can use it to, you know, invest better, and then I would have more money. And what I said to her is, well, you know, the book's really about becoming wealthy, not about being rich, you know, i.e. having more money. And maybe you already are wealthy because you're able to afford the things in life that are really meaningful to you. And just because you're not rich doesn't mean that you're not wealthy. And very importantly, vice versa. I'm sure we both know people in our professional and personal lives who have a ton of dough, but who are pretty miserable because they haven't really calibrated their purpose with their portfolio. So what I try to do in the book, to some extent, is provide mental models and a, or a framework and some vocabulary to think through, number one, what does it mean to lead a meaningful life? And, and once you've kind of sorted that out in your own head, understanding that you're going to have to update that all the time, but once you have some sense of what's driving happiness for you at a deeper level, well, what, what does that cost? Again, a difficult and somewhat awkward question, but when we think about the deeper sources of meaning, and I summarize those as sort of connection to others, control over your own story, competence at work or in your hobby, you know, finding identity through your vocation. And then finally, you know, having context, meaning like you fit into something bigger, whether it be in religion or nation or patriotism or even your sports team. But those, and we can dive into those if you'd like, but once you've figured out that, well, community is really important to me and it costs something to belong to this neighborhood or to this community center or to this church or this synagogue. And 
that's just real money out the door. And if I can't afford to belong there, that's going to be painful for me. You know, this is where you kind of get into the weeds of financial planning and, and asking, can you afford the things that you have that lead you to have a meaningful life? And so those those C's that you just mentioned from your book, effectively, those are the elements, your descriptors of a life well lived. Is that correct? That, that's, that's exactly right. Just based on reading philosophy, religion, economics, sociology, psychology, neuroscience, that whole mess of, of various disciplines, literature. You know, I came up with a mental model of the four C's connection, control, competence, and context, and those being the four things that generally sit at the root of a meaningful life, always with the big asterisk or footnote that those concepts are going to mean different things to different people. And the game here is not, those four concepts, they're not ranked on a scale from zero to 10, and you quote unquote win if you score a 40 you know, 10 across, mm -hmm. across each of them. No, you know, you have to think about, you know, what's going on in your life and what really matters to you and recognize that some of the things that I just mentioned, they're sort of in conflict with each other a little bit. So what I try to do, and hopefully it helps people, is set up this mental model where you at least have the vocabulary to think through the things that might be meaningful to you. Shifting gears just a little bit, can we talk a little bit about generosity and the impact of that on joy and well-being? And you mentioned it in the book, but I've found in my own work that that's a really interesting place. I don't know if it dilutes some of the push for more, but it sure has an impact on my life and on people's lives that, that leads maybe to this sense of contentment or joy or has a, an influence on it. I'm curious what your feelings are around that. Well, it sounds like they're right in sync with the way you think about it. And it's an area, you know, charity or generosity and grace where wanting and craving more is very much in sync with more happiness. So, you know, there's been a, a fairly large amount of scholarship in recent years as to how, you know, being generous impacts our own sense of well-being. And, and what's been found pretty conclusively is that those who are more generous tend to enjoy their lives more. I talk about generosity or charity as being you know, probably the most selfishly constructive thing that you can do. And this is where we go from the profound you know, to the pedestrian. We can think in general terms about that. But what does it mean? It means tipping a little bit extra. It means you know, you're staying in a hotel for a couple nights, leave 10 bucks, you know, five bucks a day for the person who's working his or her butt off to clean your room when you're done. It means, you know, just helping people out in a deliberate way that you know is impacting their life. And it really does come back to you on the graciousness part. You know, the world's less kind than it seems to be. I mean, maybe I'm just sort of a old man in a get off my lawn moment. But, you know, it's, it's, sort, of, <laughs> it's sort of rough and tumble these days. If you look at the political environment and all that, you know, being kind, saying thank you. You know, writing a note to someone to say thanks for something they did for you, man, those make such an impact on people's lives, but they also make an impact on yours. And one reason why there is actually a positive relationship between more money 
and more life satisfaction. And I don't, I, when I say more money and life satisfaction, I don't mean kind of day to day, good mood, bad mood. I, I mean that deeper sense of, of purpose is that, well, when you have more, you can give more. And the idea that you can, you know, help people in the here and now as well as leave, leave a legacy as you grow older, that's really meaningful. Another spot right there that's intriguing to me is that I agree with you that this generosity concept is what I sometimes refer to as free dopamine. Yeah. And yet our charitable giving is stuck somewhere. I mean, pick a number around 3%. And, and it's almost regardless of income level, which is fascinating to me. And that's been the case for decades. It's not like that's a new phenomenon. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that as it relates to this subject and what's maybe keeping that stuck and if that research is so compelling as i believe it is what keeps people from stepping into that space well i'm hypothesizing first of all it may be the fact that people just don't understand you know the impact on themselves that they can have if they grow more and more generous another dynamic that comes to mind you know throw out a, a $10 term, there's something in the social psychology literature known as temporal discounting, which is just the basic idea that stuff that happens today is more important and immediate to you than stuff that happens in 10 years, which is why many people struggle to save, because it means that you are delaying gratification, you're delaying consumption. And so you'd rather have the hamburger today than the steak dinner in a week because you can't wait. I think there's an element to, well, I'd, I'd rather spend it in the here and now when it makes me feel good than, you know, disperse it around, not recognizing that, you know, there's this treadmill that all of us live on, which is that, well, no matter what you're buying or striving for, you're, you're going to even in the good cases where you achieve what you hope to, there's a pretty quick letdown. Again, another loaded term, hedonic adaptation, the idea that no matter what happens in life, good or bad, we kind of become used to it. Buying that car, buying, you know, upgrading your home, going on the fancier vacation, there might be a little dopamine in that in the very here and now, but it goes away really quickly and it doesn't come back. Yeah, I love that. You talked about that in the book, that idea we get happiness and then we want more. Yeah. We just get used to it. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, think that's yeah. just a, it's so true. So true. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll bungle the quote, but there's a great quote from Mad Men, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. And, and you know, Don Draper, who sort of in his own way, sort of a morose philosopher on life and who's basically trying to sell all of us things that, you know, make us happy for 10 seconds until we're miserable. He was asked, like, what is happiness? And he said, happiness is that feeling that you have until you want more happiness. <laughs> it just, it, it never, it never really stops. And, and so for people who can take the time to step back and recognize that that treadmill is an unpleasant place to sprint through life and that there are better ways of doing this. You know, that opportunity is out there for almost everybody, almost everybody beyond, you know, folks living just on a, you know, sustenance income. Hey, I read that your family is pretty committed to social causes, including education and literacy initiatives. So it sounds like you have taken this concept into your own personal life. And I'm curious 
how that's played into your own philosophy about money and meaning making, if you will, from a personal standpoint? Yeah. You know, what a, what a fool and a sham I would be if I learn these things and I don't follow through. So I think over recent years, especially as my, again, I've got three teenagers as, as the kids have grown and we live in an urban community where there, there are challenges. We've just gotten more involved. You know, for us, the biggest issue is hunger. I mean, it really does infuriate me that in a country as wealthy as ours, that there are children who go to bed hungry at night. And so, you know, we both in terms of our time and volunteering as well as money, we are quite active in the food pantry network in Chicago. And another issue is literacy. And we support globally some charities or foundations that provide literacy training and and books to children who otherwise wouldn't have them because of growing up in a poor and restrictive country. For what it's worth, I'm giving all of the profits from the geometry of wealth to charity. As people who write books know, you don't make that much money to begin with. And so I'm probably less generous than people think that I am. But it's also something important for my kids to witness and participate in which is that, you know, if you're not living in service to others, like, what what are you doing? I, I want them to see that because we know that they follow our actions and our behaviors more than our words. So I, I kind of want to live that. So, you know, they can model that behavior or mimic that behavior, I should say, down the road, maybe, you know, when I'm not even around. No, that's very cool. Yeah, as a as an author myself, I, I I recognize that idea that there was a really a need. I can't just talk about these concepts. I actually need to model them and 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 live them out of my own life because that's part of the journey of all of this is not just to educate; it's to also live it myself. And it sounds like you're really living it yourself and and also educating. Well, I try. I mean, I I don't want to like. You know, I don't want to get into like virtue signaling. You know, we do what we can. Life has its ups and downs. And I would like the world to be a better place for our kids. I mean, that sounds like such a saccharine or maudlin idea, but I, I really do believe that. So, yeah, my, my wife and I take this seriously. But, you know, I, I quote in the book an old Japanese proverb, fall down seven times, stand up eight. You're, you're always sort of going forward a little bit, but then backtracking and, and uh, things don't work out as you hope. And there's sort of, you know, misfortune in terms of illness and, and, and other things. And you, you just got to stay in the game. And I, I, I like that, you know, because, you know, everyone has a plan until they get, they get punched in the face. Well, all right, keep, keep going. I, I like that. And, you know, for what it's worth, I do try to teach my kids a lot about hustle because I think that making the effort independent of whatever, you know, given talents you have is, is where all the action is. One subject that I wanted to touch on that we hadn't gotten to exactly yet was this idea of risk. And we know what that means from an investment standpoint. You talk about it in your book at quite length as it relates to portfolio management. But I was intrigued with the idea of as we gain more wealth, and I mean that in the form of financial assets, sometimes that can create its own bubble, if you will, around us that, that really, it insulates us from what allowed us to move in life towards things that were meaningful, because we don't want to disrupt the bubble. We don't want to disrupt the cocoon. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, 
have you seen instances where you're able to to keep stepping towards the risk, which feels counterintuitive because mm-hmm. we're all about preserving what we have, and yet life tells us and shows us in a lot of cases, and I, you know, you even mentioned the idea that you know, it's not so much more risk you take, the more money you're going to make. I get all the variability stuff, but I have the potential to have a better return the more I go out on the risk spectrum. And and if I applied that to my life, is it possible that I'm accepting CD returns partly of my own making? (laughs) And, And what I really want is a life that has, maybe it is more variability, but it's got a much higher level of richness or wealth to it. And some of that is in the way I think about risk from a life perspective, not just a portfolio perspective. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah. So the, it's a deep well because, it, yeah, it, first and foremost, it's not a, a money issue. It's an existential issue. I mean, what what's the number one imperative for all of us? It's to survive. And so, you know, that could lead to a conclusion that, well, we shouldn't really take much risk at all because the more risk we take, the more chance there is for us to end up in harm's way in in life generally. But we also know that there's the need to grow. We we won't get too much into sort of evolutionary biology and and that sort of stuff. But, you know, we're we're competing for resources in the world and, and, and we need to grow and develop in a variety of ways. And so to me, this is the ultimate balancing act in life including how we participate with our money and and in the markets, which is that you have to take enough risk in order to grow, but you can't take on too much risk where the chance of catastrophe looms too large. And so part of what we're all doing is trying to calibrate that. We probably don't, well, almost none of us think about it in statistical terms, which is good because, you know, slapping numbers onto this proposition makes it sound more precise than it actually is. And Beyond that, you know, there's all these areas of life, whether it be in education or in the workplace or in relationships and love, as well as financial markets, health, fitness. These are all areas where we're calibrating risk on a, on a daily basis, even though we're probably not thinking about it. And most of us are calibrated just fine because we wake up and we live our day and nothing particularly terrible happens and nothing great happens. And we're kind of walking down the middle. I developed this concept in the book called Less Wrong that I think people in their lives generally, but especially in the market, in the you know, sort of the financial market, should take very seriously. And, and the notion is simply that, you know, we are aspirational, especially you, me, the people who would listen to this podcast. We want to be more right. You know, we want to be bigger, faster, stronger, richer. You know, we do want more. But we can get out over our skis and think, you know, first and foremost about the upside potential while losing perspective on what the downside could be. The idea is not to crawl into our shell and take no risk. We've already covered, you know, the downside of doing that. But it is to both analytically, but more importantly, emotionally think about that calibration between thinking about the upside whether it be in our portfolio or in our career or in our relationship, while also being explicit about, you know, well, there's some downside here. Is there anything that I can do to hedge or eliminate that risk? That's really not a thought process that many people take seriously on an explicit level. And what I've found with, you know, having been on the market for decades now and having the chance to 
meet with, interview, due diligence on, become friends with, just observe the very best money managers in the world, you know, the most common characteristic is humility, meaning that they don't know what the future holds, and what they really want to avoid is the big mistake that knocks them out of the game. So first and foremost, they want to be less wrong. And then once they feel like they've kind of eliminated the risk of a catastrophe, they embrace the fact that the future is unpredictable, but they can be more or less smart about some decisions about the world to come. And then they can allow compounding to grow their wealth. This is the way Buffett and Munger operate. This is the way Howard Marks operates. This is the way some of the best hedge fund managers operate. They're, they're less wrong before they're more right. And I think it's actually a model that could be imported not only to normal people like you and me in finance, but to folks thinking about their life more generally outside of the markets in career or health or relationships. That's really interesting. I appreciate your insights and thoughts on that. You've talked about this idea of, of more and this, this whole hedonic adaptation, this idea that when we get happiness, we want more. But you also in your book talk about enoughness, you know, what, that we have a very difficult time saying, I, I'm an, I have enough, no matter kind of where we are. Why is that so hard to grapple with? Yeah, this is the topic that I probably philosophized the most. The last chapter of, of the book, and I think it's unsettled and a little open-ended. And to me, it's a very broad framing of some of the tensions that we've been already talking about in terms of you know the relationship between money and happiness, taking enough risk but not too much, and so forth. You know, there really is a dual existential imperative toward both more and enough. So. You know, the more imperative, uh, as I've mentioned in different ways, it, it is the idea that we need to grow. We need to strive and to thrive and to feel like that we're, we're getting ahead. This isn't scientific, it's anecdotal. But if you ask somebody at the front of a line who's not moving how happy they are and they compare it to somebody who's toward the back of the line but moving forward quickly, the person farther behind is probably happier because they feel like they're making progress. And that urge mm. for progress is very much, you know, sort of definitional of who we are as human beings. So we have that urge for more, but we also know that there's value in enough. There's value in stillness. There's value in counting your blessings and the things that were taught during the more quiet times, which is, you know, focus on what you have and really enjoy that. And, and there's a reason why during these noisy times, at least in urban environments like the one that I live in, in Chicago, but I've seen it all over the country, what's all over the place now? Yoga, meditation, mindfulness, quiet rooms, and, and just finding a place where you can let your mind rest. It's incredibly healthy, not just at an abstract psychological level, but now we have the neuroscience to show how healthy that is. So. So what do, what do we do with the fact that we have an imperative toward moving forward and an imperative toward sitting still? I, I start the book with a quote from Gertha that really moved me, maybe even has changed my life. And, and he said, do not hurry, do not rest. And, and I thought that was just about the most elegant encapsulation of the idea that in life we need to find a pace and a rhythm that works for us. And it's going to be very personal and it's going to be very subjective. But to me, the more aware you are of that dynamic, 
I think the more that you can achieve that meaning that we've been talking about. So I don't think the urge for more and the urge for enough are reconcilable intellectually, analytically, psychologically. I think they're just at odds with each other. And if you use those, you know, frames over the course of a day or a week, you'll recognize sometimes you're in a more mode and sometimes you're in an enough mode. Recognizing that rhythm and managing it, so do not hurry, do not rest, I think there might be something there. Interesting. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you. And the last question I have is kind of where you were heading with some of that, which is a concept I call living fully, which is akin to funded contentment, loosely speaking. But the idea that definition for success in our lives is is just has to be bigger than just money. It's a much broader, more holistic definition that leads us to this truly wealthy life or, or defines what a truly wealthy life looks like. And I'm curious from your own perspective in your own life, how would you define that for you, for Brian Portnoy right now? What would a life fully lived, what is a life fully lived at this stage of your life right now mean? So the, the living fully, I, I really like that phrasing. I really do lean on this you know, four C's model of connection, control, competence, and context. And, you know, I think about the things that matter to me in terms of my family, in terms of supporting community, you know, t- taking care of others, taking care of the community, while also scratching some of my own itches in terms of learning, reading, teaching, advising, and so forth. It's messy. There's no algorithm or, or recipe, but, you know, there's sort of a list of things that I keep where like, okay, these are the things that are really important to me. You know, I have a sense of my assets versus my liabilities, and I have a sense of how stable we are financially and the extent to which I can fund the contentment that I'm currently thinking about. And, you know, right right now it's, it's probably okay, but, um, you know, it's just a round world, and, and we'll kind of see what comes next. Well, thank you so much for all your time and sharing. We went a little bit longer than we talked about going today, but the conversation is so good that I just didn't want to shorten any of this. If people want to find out more about your book, books, I should say, and some of the other work and writing you're doing, what's the best way for them to uh, find you? So I think there's only one bookstore left called Amazon. So um, (laughs) wealthy available through that. I spend a lot of time on financial Twitter, where there's a lot of really interesting people talking about money, happiness, decision making, and and so forth. And so I can be found there at Brian Portnoy. And then I have a website called shapingwealth.com, which does give some other information on other books and blogs and podcasts and things like that I've been involved with. Well, thanks again for joining me today. It's been great and and just really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, fabulous questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for checking out my conversation with Brian Portnoy. He makes it clear that aligning purpose and practice is necessary to live a truly meaningful life, not just one filled with empty resources. If you'd like to hear more about how to bring meaning to your money, check out my new book, The Wealth Creator's Playbook, available now on Amazon. 
If you think a friend or family member might benefit from what you've heard on this episode, let them know about our show. You can also leave feedback wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also share your questions and comments with me on social media, and you can find me at JC Christensen or over email at john at jcchristensen.com. Thanks again for listening and go live fully. Wealth Confidant is produced by Anna McLean and Target Marketing Digital. Our theme song is Day is Gonna Come by Royal Deluxe.